Welcome to the Bakersfield Whiskey Society podcast. At the Bakersfield Whiskey Society, we know you want to be a whiskey expert. And in order to do that, you need to drink and learn about whiskey. The problem is, whiskey can be intimidating. And that often leaves you feeling confused and frustrated. Well, we're here to help take the mystery out of whiskey. To help you understand what you like and why you like it. So kick back, pour yourself a glass of something, unless you're driving. And get ready to learn what you like and why you like it. This is the Bakersfield Whiskey Society Podcast. My name's Tim McNeely, and welcome to the Bakersfield Whiskey Society Podcast. And wow, am I excited today. We're going to be talking about the language of whiskey. Did you even know that there is a language of whiskey? Well, that's what we're going to dive in today and share with you. And today's guest is David McNichol, and he is really a linguistics expert, and he has taken a deep dive into the language of whiskey. And by the time we finish together, you're going to know more of the backstory of whiskey and the language used to describe the whiskey that you love. You're going to have a very, very different perspective the next time you pour yourself a wee dram, and you're going to feel even more confident the next time you pick up a bottle of whiskey, a bottle of scotch, you look at that label, you're going to feel confident in reading that. David, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you very much, Tim, for having me on. That's awesome. Absolutely thrilled to have you here. So the history of scotch, right? The language of whiskey. Why is that so important? Why does it matter? Well, for me, myself, being Scottish, I think that it's an industry and you know everybody knows about it and we drink it. It's a very much part of our daily lives. But we don't really dive deep into where it comes from and how it has affected not just the history of Scotland, which of course it really has been an integral part of, but how that then became a global success. So the next time you pour a whiskey into your glass and toast whatever it is you toast, there is there are people who have gone into making that physically, but then there's those people who set up the distilleries in the first place. Then there's the backstory as why those distilleries were there and the heritage that then builds in on that. There's knock-on effects for why the whiskies were where they were. So yeah, it, it's really about an interlocking system between history, culture, and, and the whiskey. So it's more than just brown juice in a glass. Right, because you say the language of whiskey, and I, I know the first thing most people think about, many of you listening today, you think language of whiskey and you're thinking, okay, what kind of whiskey I'm drinking? What, what kind of barrel was it aged in? Where did it come from? Are those the things you're talking about when you talk about the language of whiskey? I think there's two approaches I took in terms of there was the whiskey that you see on the back bar. So whether it's something like Lamorangi or, or Kalila or Lagavulin, Macallan, what do the actual distillery names, what do the whiskeys themselves mean? What is their etymology? What does that physically mean? And that will then take us down to where the languages themselves came from. A thousand years ago, there were six languages in common currency in Scotland, and today there are two, English and Gaelic. So the different areas of Scotland have different linguistic heritages. The far north of Scotland has a very strong Norse influence. The southwest of Scotland has a very strong Welsh influence. And so this, because the distilleries themselves have over really the course of the last 300 years been sifted and riddled into where they lie today, where they lie will then have their names determined by that part of Scotland, which was influenced by whatever language had been spoken historically. So it was that side of it, which was the actual names themselves, and that mushroomed into lots of other sort of social history, cultural history. But also, having worked in the industry for a number of years, I've worked for multinationals, I've worked for independent brands, 
was that there's a lot of corporate speak, as with any industry, but there's also a lot of, of production terminology that's used from things like wash and wart and low wines and so forth. And even something as simple as yeast, you know, everybody knows that, you know, your whiskey, that you make whiskey out of water, grain and, and yeast. Well, the word yeast itself is an old English word, which means to boil and to froth, because that's the physical part of fermentation that you see, but it also has the same root etymologically as to get the gist of something, to boil down to an understanding. So it was opening up Pandora's box a little bit to sort of break down the functional parts of, of production and to try and sort of remove the layers of complexity and say this, is, this has its own language, but that language is not beyond the reach of an enthusiast or somebody who's interested in whiskey. Very often, and it's not really something the industry does, but very often there's a lot of, of terminology and complexity or added complexity to, done to the enjoyment of whiskey, which we're trying to get away from. It should be an inclusive drink. It's an every man's drink. It's something that we shouldn't be disenfranchised from just because not necessarily understand the terminology that's been used or very often a lot of it is based on getting certain flavors and smells and so on. And if you don't get that, then there's, there's that disenfranchisement. And that, that's something that we want to, that I want to try and sweep through and cut through some of the fluff. Okay. Well, right. And back to that language of whiskey. So it sounds like from your perspective, you've kind of put it into to almost two groups. And one of those groups of language is just kind of like the, the physical characteristics and the industry speak and right wash yep. and mash and production and alcohol content and, you know, barrel proof, right? All those things. But then I think there's a more interesting side of the language that you started to hit on. And that's the sense of place. That's the sense of history, yep. right? Why are things named the way they are, right? Right, Lenmorangi. What does that mean? What Brunehaven? What is? What the heck is a Lafroig? Right. I yeah. mean, th- yeah. things like that. And so, so could you take us through maybe some of that that linguistic history of a place to give us an example of what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I guess I, the starting point, if you want to Tarantino, it is the end point is that the point where you're actually physically buying a whiskey in a shop or you're buying it on the back bar is I. It's like an old, an old story that says that one of the reasons that Macallan is successful is because people can say it. There's a lot of whiskeys on the back bar that if they were to start from scratch, I think your Bunahaven is a good example. If you were trying to make a whiskey that was going to be hugely successful in the 21st century market, you would probably try and make one that a global audience can pronounce. But it doesn't have a pronounceability for a 21st century uh, audience. Because it wasn't made for a 21st century audience. It, come, it means, Bunahaven, for example, means the bottom of the river. It doesn't mean the, the gravelly bottom. It means the place where it flows out into the sea, literally the bottom of the river. And that was the name of the farm because the farm was at the bottom of the river. And so the name for the distillery comes from the name of the original farm, and that is descriptive. Now, the vast majority of the whiskies in Scotland, or come out of Scotland, are Gaelic-based. Now, the Gaelic language, with the greatest will in the world, is not exactly universally understood. And it's not exactly the easiest language in the world to come wrap your head around, never mind your tongue around. I had to do it at school compulsory, and my grandparents could speak Gaelic. But it's not a widely spoken language. If you get on a map of the Highlands of Scotland, a detailed walking map, I would say 99% of people in Scotland can't pronounce the hill names, mainly because they're all written in Gaelic. Only 50,000 people today speak Gaelic, of which maybe 20,000 speak it habitually on a community language basis. So you have 
a, a slew of whiskies that are derived from a language that very few people now speak and a, a language that is constructed very differently to, to English. There's no yes or no in Gaelic. There's no word for yes, there's no word for no. You know, and the complexity just builds upon that. So trying to slip away a little bit of that. But what a Gaelic is, is it's very descriptive. It's not a language of commerce or trade. It's a language of hearth and home. It's a language of the sheep fank. It's, it's a language whereby, you know, the, that whole thing where they say that, that you know, the Inuit have 20 words meaning snow, but no word means snow. Well, in Gaelic, there's probably about 50 words that mean rain, but no word that actually means rain because it just rains all the time. So you have to have rain that comes in on a slant, rain that comes straight down, or this kind of thing. So the example I always give, the Gaelic for an owl is Kailiachna Oiche, the old lady of the night. The Gaelic for a spider is Davanali, the little stag which hunts. So the language is very descriptive in terms of what it sees, it describes, and that then gets embedded within place names. So like Ben Romach, for example, is the Shaggy Mountain. So you have to imagine yourself standing on the fields where Ben, ben Romach is 500 years ago, and probably the hill, the, the Shaggy Mountain, would have been probably the only hill with trees on it. So everything else would have been surrounded by rigs of barley, and then this hill would have stood out with lots of trees in it. And from a descriptive point of view, it's a Shaggy Mountain. So that that really was what enthused me to as a starting point for writing this was very easy then to take each of the whiskies and then dive into their etymologies and then from that we get to see the world or certainly the world of scotland from our ancestors eyes so we look at it how they saw it rather than how we see it today and that that really was the passion behind this right okay so very fascinating right going back to uh ben Romick, right the the shaggy mountain you said right yeah so now we have a little bit of sense of place. We know a little bit more about the ancestry. How does that help us understand a little bit more about what's going on? And why is that so important, do you think, for whiskey lovers to understand? I think that it doesn't in itself inform you of how the whiskey is going to taste, for example. Although the localities of the whiskeys obviously can have an effect. There's no real terroir when it comes to whiskey, but it's, it's where it comes from it does affect its history. So an example would be Scapa. On Orkney, scapa is a Norse word, scalp, it means boat. And it's because of the sheltered harbour of scapa flow. So we have the etymology whereby it's Nordic in origin, not Gaelic or English. And the fact that it was uh, on the coast and so on. So we'll know that there's going to be sea breezes and so on and, and, and peat used from the, the coast rather than from the inland side. So if you want to dive into that. But what it does is that it it illuminates what you're going to drink. So you have a sense. I would always say that, you know, having, I used to work at a distillery that no distillery, no whiskey tastes better than when you've been on the distillery tour. You do the distillery tour, you see the stills, you see the mash tun, you smell the smells in the warehouse, and then they pour you your dram at the end. Obviously, then you exit via the shop. <laughs> you don't get the dram for free. So, and then you buy the bottle and you get home and somehow it doesn't quite taste the same as it did because you've been spend an hour being, you know, absorbing the history, absorbing the story, the smells, the sight, you see the guys making it. And I don't know, maybe it's a, it's a psychology, it's something in, in us that makes us taste something better, probably because all sorts of hormones are kicking in, firing in, that makes the whiskey actually taste better because we have a sense of where it came from and that it's a human process. So I think understanding the names can give you a window into that, that place, whether you really 
necessarily care whether Macallan means the plains of St. Philan and St. Philan was a monk who lived you know, 1,500 years ago, I think is interesting in itself. I think that is interesting. But what it does is it says, right, well, this is a whiskey as it sits in my glass here and now has a heritage, which is 1,500 years old. Yeah, right. It really is a, a fascinating journey. And I know one thing most of people listening to this enjoy is is that sense of place, is the sense of craft. And it's the stories that you tell when you're with your friends, when you're hanging out and you're all together enjoying a good bottle of something, right? Enjoying those drams together and participating in that heritage that has been passed down. And I think that's something that's so missing in the modern world is that sense of place and that sense of connectedness. So David, what started you on this journey to get into the language of whiskey? Before I just do that, I, just, I would like to just qualify what you said there is that I think perhaps it's something is, that's within us as a Celtic people. We're a very nostalgic people. We're wistfully halcyon days of warriors and so on. And one of the things that Scotch whiskey, and I think Irish whiskey does exactly the same thing, is that when you drink it, you have, as a connoisseur, as a consumer, is that you can imagine some hairy highlander on a rock with this kilt flapping in the wind and a stag and a castle and all the rest of it. Because Scotland itself, Ireland in itself, are very romantically associated places. So the whiskey in itself is associated with that sense. So you feel that you're, you're imbibing the culture as much as you're imbibing the juice. Gin, for example, doesn't have that. And I've worked for gins, and gin has a great backstory, but it's harder to sell the slums of London than it is to sell the, the mountains of Scotland. My own backstory into it, I guess, I grew up in a whiskey world. I'm, I'm not sure how familiar your listeners are to the geography of Scotland, but if you were to take a pin and put slap bang in the middle of a map of Scotland, that's roughly where I came from, a little town called Dunkeld. And about 60, 70 miles north of Edinburgh, about 100 miles south of Inverness. And I grew up in a, in a forest, still there. My parents still live there. And my grandfather was a stillman. He worked at Aberfeldy Distillery. So I grew up in a whiskey world. And I went off to university. When I came back from university, I went to work at a local distillery. I realized very quickly coming out of university that it's a, it's a bit of an ivory tower. I studied physical geography. Not a lot you can do with physical geography. At least I know how to get home. Uh, but the, uh, there's not a lot you can do with physical geography. So I came home and realized, oh, I need to get a job. So I wrote to the two local distilleries next to where I grew up, just a few miles from where I grew up, and that was Blair Athol and Edward Dower. Edward Dower gave me the thanks but no thanks letter, but Blair Athol said, yep, come up and, and you can work for us in the, uh, the visitor center side of things. So Blair Athol Distillery, which you don't really get a lot of Blair Athol in the United States, but Blair Athol as part of the Diageo portfolio. At that time, it was United Distillers and Bindlers. Diageo was a pipe dream at that time under the Guinness umbrella. And it was their flagship distillery with the biggest visitor center under the UDV portfolio. That would be superseded within while I was there by Dalhwini when the classic malt range came out. But Blair Athol was an important stop from the main highway through the Highlands. So I spent two or three years working there, and they gave us a lot of opportunity to really understand not just the making of the process, but also the cultural heritage of that particular distillery, how it sits within Highland Perthshire, which is the area I grew up in. That part of Scotland, 150 years ago, hosted nearly 30 distilleries. Today, uh, five. And why that happened is, a, is in itself a story, and that's what captured my imagination. I then went off to Edinburgh 
Scottish capital and I ran a travel business. So I used to run a lot of whiskey tourism. So I would take groups of, of people to places like Isla or to Shuts Bay. And of course, I was the designated driver. But anyway, <laughs> all across the bear. But you take these guys around to Ardbeg and Bowmore or to Craigenmore or whatever it might be. And as you did that, I guess by a process of osmosis, you just absorb a lot of that information. Also, a lot of books started coming out at the same time that I was doing that. When I started working at Blair Athol in 1999, malt whiskey was not as popular as it is today. There was not as many whiskies that you could find out there as you can today. Blend was still king. Blend is still king. But in terms of what any bar would have, it's a much shorter range. And that changed really in that next decade that came along from really the very late 90s through to 2010. And it hasn't really stopped now. But that I was there at that, that moment where the enjoyment of single malt whiskey or the appreciation of it grew. There was no such things as brand ambassadors. I've never heard of. There were no magazines. There was no malt advocate. There was no books written about it. I mean, I think Jim Murray was probably just beginning to go down the road of, of Bibles and so forth. So it was really at that moment. And then, and a lot of distilleries didn't have visitor centers. I uh, said my grandfather worked at Aberfeldy Distillery. And in year 2000, there was no visitor center at Aberfeldy. You had to go into someone's house and get the stillman to come and take you around. Now it's the Jewish world of whiskey uh, with a huge, you know, megaplex screens and all this. It's the, the, I mean, Glenfiddich were the first people to come up with this concept of, of visitor centers for distilleries. And you still don't have to pay to go around Glenfiddich. As I said, no whiskey tastes better than when you take it at its own place. It's a fantastic marketing tool. The other great thing they did, of course, was they made their bottles triangle shaped. Why? Well, you can get a third more bottles into a box, which means less gas per gallon of fuel uh, when you're driving it to the market. You know, pretty clever stuff. So I was there as, the, as that was growing. And that was really was really something that said, I want to go down the road of, of working within the industry, not working in the travel trade. And then I came to America 10 years ago. My wife is American. And I came here to New York. And I discovered very quickly that in New York, a Scotsman can only do one of two things. You either work in banking or finance, or you work in the drinks industry. But I can't count, but I can drink. So uh, I was, I've been the brand manager for Morrison Moore. So Bowmore and Ockintoshin, I've worked with Almore and Jura, and uh, I've worked last week with Coleman as well. So, and I've also worked for a couple of gin companies, and I currently have my wares for a distillery that's actually just a mile or two away from me here in Jersey City. So, uh, so yeah, so I immersed myself in that, but what I really wanted was to, to bring out my geography knowledge, my own personal passion for history, and that's what really drove me to, to write the language of whiskey. But I also wanted to, to move away from all these other books that were out there, which tended to be more flavorful. So my name is Tim McNeely, and you are listening to the Bakersfield Whiskey Society podcast. And we are having a conversation today with author of The Language of Whiskey, David McNichol. And we're talking about just the geography of Scotland and the cultural heritage and, and how language influences the names of the distilleries and, and the whiskeys that are there. And Dave's been sharing his knowledge with us. And so, David, right, kind of going back to your book some, tell us a little bit about the project. How long did you work on it? And, and what were you really trying to accomplish with the book? Well, as I said, I want, one of the things I really wanted to do was write something that, well, I guess ultimately, I, if, if I hadn't written it and I saw it in Barnes & Noble, I would have bought it. I wanted to buy something I would read. And uh, if anybody's out there wanting to write something like this, 
also choose probably your most harshest critic when it comes to what you think you know, because at the end of the day, you probably don't know as much as you think you do. So write it for them as if they were reading it, expecting to be criticized over a dram. So I, I guess it took about three or four years in terms of being in the brain and just writing stuff down, little bits of bits and pieces of information. And then to make this sort of leap to say, look, I am actually going to, to do this. And I guess the trick is to have the hook. And the hook was to take a hundred or so different whiskies and then dive deep into what did they mean? Because that really was something that nobody else had done. So from there, you have the kernel of what is your project. And then from that, you can grow, it can grow legs into, well, how does the, the, the geography affect it, the climate affect it, and how does the, the linguistic heritage? And then I finished off, as I said, with the, with the production stuff. I was very lucky to meet up uh, with Lara, who's my publisher of Wheatfield Press, sit down with her. She thought it was a great project. And that, that was really the last sort of, sort of uh, piece of the jigsaw to allow me to go ahead with this because then I had somebody who was willing to take that to the natural conclusion, which is a written book. So, yeah, and I, I guess that the moment when you do all that, when you see it on Amazon, it kind of feels real. <laughs> and, and then, of course, people have to read it, and then you go, what are you going to say about it? <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, it, it spurred me on, and, you know, I have a, quite a lot of free time on my hands right now. So I'm busy working on a number of other little projects as well. So, but yeah, it, it was a labor of love. Who should read the book? Who's going to benefit from some of the knowledge in there? I think that if you have a, a, an interest in whiskey, obviously, it, it's a truism, and it seems very, very straightforward to say that. But I think if it's more than just liquor in a glass, and it's something that you have, you know, as you say, it's a communal thing. It's something you do with your friends, and you know, you you sit in a you know a nice bar or in your porch or whatever, and you're drinking your your whiskey. Do you really want to know a little bit more about what's in the glass? But I think it does go beyond somebody who's just interested in whiskey. I think somebody who's interested in social history or how an industry that we take for granted, I mean, Scottish industry is a huge industry, but when we take it, you know, it's, it's everywhere we look, you know, it's, it's a massive, massive multinational entity. But at the same time, it's also very personal and it has a very human story. So I think if anybody's interested in the history of Scotland or maybe of Scottish ancestry, Scottish heritage, something like that, that, you know, if you're already going down the road of being interested in multiple different kinds of Scotches, you're probably interested in Scotland anyway. And so I think it's for people who are interested in Scotland and their heritage as much as people who are interested in whiskey. So in writing the book, in doing the, the research, in really putting together the language of whiskey, what were some of the, the challenges that you ran into? Uh, the, a lot of the, uh, some, well, from the linguistic part of it is that while some of the distilleries are very easy to translate into English, some of them are not so much. So there's a little bit of ambiguity that can come about that. Glenturric, for example, which is only 20 miles from where I grew up, Glenturric can mean the, the valley of the dead, or it could mean the valley of fast-flowing, it's almost angry water. So sometimes I had to pick and choose the etymology I thought fitted the, the meaning better. And I thought that that running water etymology was probably better coming from a whiskey point of view than you know, the Valley of the Dead. Although the brand new distillery on Isla, Arden Hole, that's literally what it means as well. It means the promontory of the, the burial ground. So you know, people are dying to buy that. So I think that there was a challenge of being able to, to dive deep into that. Also, some of the other whiskies, uh, so for example, Talisker, which I think everybody's, it's a whiskey that I think most people who know are Scotches have come across Talisker at some point. So Talisker is a Norse name, and it means the sloping rock. 
Now, Talisker Bay is not where the distillery is. Uh, they're about five miles apart, but it was part of the Talisker estate. The Talisker is a northward sloping rock, but you only get the notion of it being a sloping rock if you're on a boat, which, of course, the Vikings were. It doesn't, you don't quite get it from the landward point of view. And then it got translated into Gaelic, and then from Gaelic into English. So there was that linguistic side of things. We had to, I had to do that. Then also there was there are distilleries which are named after people. Like, for example, I said Macallan, the Plains of St. Philan. Well, there was two St. Philans on the coast 1,500 years ago. One of them was much more Irish-based, the other one Southern Scottish-based. So diving deep sometimes opened up more questions than it answered. But hopefully I was able to navigate that and complete the circle. That side of things, but also, I guess, knowing what not to write. It's almost like this conversation, knowing what not to say. When I was a tour guide, I remember on day one, I was told the trick of being a good tour guide is not knowing everything and what to say, it's knowing when to shut up and just let people absorb. Otherwise, it becomes information overload. So this wasn't a book that was meant to be war and peace. It wasn't meant to be a tome where it was very clinical and very, particularly in talking about process, where it would be you know, very much sort of technical. It was meant to be much more about something you can sit down, have your whiskey, and flip this book and go, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's an interesting fact. That was the, the, the motivation behind it. So it sounds like some of the challenges were, you know, some of the interpretive pieces and, and really yeah. trying to, to pull back and say, all right, what does this mean? The, the other challenges were really figuring out what to focus on, what to put in the book. Yeah. As you were doing this, what were some pleasant surprises or some things that you learned were, that you were just absolutely blown away by? What were some of those surprise moments for you? I suppose that the most of the surprises probably came from finding out what a place actually meant. I think that, that probably was the, the most pleasing part. Was But sometimes you have to dig quite deep into documentation and, and records and so forth. And then you come across it and you go, and it was the penny dropping moment, the aha moment where you go, oh, well, of course it is that. Yes, do, you, do you have one of those moments you can share with us? I guess an, as an example is Blair Athol, because it, the, one of the big aha moments really for Blair Athol came, because I guess I, you start with what you know. So Athol itself is a territory in the Central Highlands. And for centuries, it's been written down as the meaning New Ireland. But to me, as a, somebody with a degree in geography, I always look at history through a geographer's eyes. It just didn't make sense from a geographical point of view to call something New Ireland. But it brought it into a story that the Scots had come from Ireland. Now, we know that that now isn't the case. So there was a lot of new interpretation, a lot of place names, and a lot of understanding of what things meant was written in, in the Victorian age and hadn't really been re-looked at, re-evaluated. And a lot of that re-evaluation did come along in the last 10 to 15 years, a lot of new publications coming out of Edinburgh University, for example. And in going through a lot of books and seeing where changes had been made, I came across an uh, interpretation of Athol as the passages to the north. And when you break down the Gaelic, that actually makes a lot of sense. And this part of Scotland has a lot of the old drove roads, the old smuggling roads, and the old high passes that went through directly through the mountains. So it made sense that that was where the main transport link was through, as it, the main highway today still does cut through that area. So to me, understanding that it meant the, the fields of the roads to the north were one of a better mm -hmm. translation, that, that, was a, that was an aha moment. Because it wow. was right at my doorstep. It's where I grew up. And suddenly I understood about my own backyard more than, than I would have done otherwise. So that would be an example of that. So it was that. 
but also learning some of the, the more technical stuff that I hadn't really dug into because there was no real need for it in, in any of the jobs I had. And that was, that was interesting as well. Oh, very fun. So for someone who's starting to assemble their language of whiskey and put together a basic vocabulary, what would be some basic words that we should know? The two words that I think that most people who are non-Gales would get from any look at a map of Scotland, never mind the whiskies, first of all, is Glen. There's a lot of Glens out there. Your uh, example of Glenmorangie is pretty good because there is no such place as Glenmorangie. The word Glen. Well, well, right. What does Glen mean? It means a valley. All right. Just simply valley. All right. Uh, Excellent. So you you can qualify that by saying it's a closed headed valley that's just generally narrower than a strath. So if you get something like Strath Mill, for example, well, obviously the mill part is English, but a Strath is a broad-based valley. A glen tends to be a narrower valley. So there's a lot of Glenlivet, Glenlivet the, the valley of the smooth-running water. But Vidic is harder to, to pin etymologically-wise because Vidic is a personal name, probably going back into a language that hasn't been spoken in Scotland for well over a 1,000 years. So it's, it, and it, it's an ancient province, province was Fid, which is a personal name. So, but the word Glen is valley. Now, what happened was that with certain whiskies, particularly the Glenlivets, Glenlivet became almost a region of its own in the 19th century when the blenders were coming and choosing whiskies to go into their blends. If you can imagine living in the 1860s and you decided that you were going to build a blended whiskey, there was almost a, a how-to book. You opened it up and there was lists of A, 1, 2, 3, and 4. So these were columns of different whiskies. And you would say, I'll take two from column one, and two from column B. And you, that was your whiskey basis, your malt whiskey base for your blends. Well, all the A class or the column one classes are all in what we call Speyside. So Speyside is a region that's created for blending purposes. And Glenlivet, the whiskies there, had a reputation for high quality. And the word Glen became, in a way, uh, a word that was for marketing in the Victorian age, a way of saying this is going to be good whiskey because it's got the word Glen in it. And Glen Morangy is a perfect example of that. There is Morangy Farm, there is the Morangy Stream, but there is no Glen, there's no valley of the Morangy. So Glen Morangy, same with Glen Murray, for example, the Glen was added as a prefix, as a marketing tool. I don't tell you that, of course, but it was that really was where that came from to be able to market it as being of a high quality. I mean, it's like any bottle you see from back in the day go pure malt whiskey, fine old whiskey, great old whiskey. It, it was all how the, the, the whiskey barons wanted to sell their wares. And so that would be, you know, using the word blend. The other one would be Loch, like Loch Nagar, down at Royal Loch Nagar. Loch and, and is, what is a, the Gallagher. And what does Loch mean? Lake. It, it is the Scottish word for lake. So some basic words that you can put in your vocabulary or you can put Glen in there and right Glen, yeah. you can think of Valley. We can put lock in there and lock is, can make us think of Lake. What would be a couple other basic words that, that we should have in our vocabulary as we think about the language of whiskey? Well, take Lagavulin, for example. So that's a good combinant because lag is hollow and Vulin is the genitive in Gaelic of, of a mill. Now, because the whiskey comes out of an agricultural world that requires grain, you need a mill to turn your grain into grist and then into something you can use in the process, it very often fell that the distilleries were either had their own mill or they lay next to a mill. So Lagavulin is the mill in the hollow. 
Tamnavulan is the mill on the on the hill. Hard for me to just to say it exactly in itself, but Tool is the Gaelic for a barn. Barn is where you kept your barley. So Tom and Tool. So a lot of it is not what you would normally you would classify as everyday Gaelic that people would use. There's very few Gaelic words have made it into English. I mean, I can think of galore as in whiskey galore. Galore is a Gaelic word. For example, pony is a Gaelic word. A slogan. Every, every whiskey has its slogan. Slogan is a Gaelic word. It was the strap line that every clan had. Clan is the Gaelic for children. So it was an idea of the father of the, the tribe, if you like, and his children. So clown and Gaelic is children. Beyond that, it's they're very idiosyncratic beyond that, 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 that each one has its own particular, what else would you, Blair, as in Blair Athol and so forth. They, that would be, that's a plain or a meadow. Um, very, very fascinating. Yeah. So in your book, then, you break down a lot of these names and where they come from and the linguistics and the sense of geography and place yeah. then. Yes, And 100%. so where, where can people find your book, David? Uh, currently, we, uh, because of the current conditions that we're in, I haven't really got an awful lot of chance to get out and, and push it. So right now, you can ask me for it and I can get the, the publisher to provide it by sending it on. But Amazon right now is where it's uh, Right. And we'll put we'll put links down below so you can grab your copy. Yep. And I would highly encourage anyone listening to this. If you're listening to this right now, you want to pick up a copy of this book. It's absolutely fantastic. And, and the stories that are told, and if you really want to get nerdy, and even if you don't, if you just want a little bit of sense of place and a little bit deeper understanding the next time you pour yourself a, a dram of your favorite scotch, you're going to want to pick up this book. It's absolutely fantastic. And so, David, we were talking a little bit earlier even about just the effect that legislation can even have on whiskey too. Yeah. And so, w- would you share some of the impact that legislation has had on the industry and how that's influenced the, the language that we use? It's been very influential in terms of the story of Scotch and the making of it. There's a key piece of legislation that comes in 1823, which I'll, I'll come on to in a second. Um, but there's a slow build-up in terms of, of government trying to wrap its head around the Scotch whisky industry. There, in a way, there's two Scotch whisky industries. There's the Scotch whisky industry that comes after 1823, which is the one that we're familiar with. And there's the Scotch industry that comes before 1823, which is the one we're less familiar with almost the gap years. There's a piece of legislation that goes through the Scottish Parliament in 1644, where uh, two shillings and sixpence is placed upon uh, a gallon of aquavita. And that was raised so that the uh, rebelling Scottish government could fight against the king and be able to pay the soldiers. So the first piece of legislation, subsequent legislation, has really been about how to raise money. And it really comes to to a head in, in two defining moments. One is 1707, which is when Scotland and England came together to form the United Kingdom. So on the 1st of May, 1707, England ceased to be an independent country. And the same day, so did Scotland. We came together uh, under Westminster rule in London. And the laws that affected England in terms of malt, malt being malted barley and used in the process of brewing as well as in whiskey making, that malt tax that was in England, which had been raised fight the French didn't apply in Scotland. Well, in 18, so 1725, the, the British Prime Minister then applied that tax, a lower rate than in England, but a brand new tax on malt in Scotland. And there were riots. The Shawfield riots in Glasgow, 11 people were killed. Uh, the, the union nearly broke apart simply because of grain and the lack of it. So the taxes were modified that 
So what it did was it drove a lot of whiskey making underground, particularly in the Highlands of Scotland. Highlands of Scotland, very remote, very little in the way of roads, communication-wise, very easy to hide your stills, small cottage industry. It was a family-run thing. People lived hand-to-mouth. It was a subsistence farming existence. And a couple of bad harvests, you were really in trouble. So to make ends meet, a lot of people made whiskey. And it was everywhere. Virtually every farm had a small tin or pot still in their shed. In southern Scotland, lowland Scotland, between Edinburgh and Glasgow, it became a commercial industry. By the 1750s, there was a distillery between Edinburgh and Glasgow called Kennet Pans, which was producing more spirit than any big gin distillery in London was doing. It was huge. Today, it's a ruin. There's nothing there. This massive, massive distillery. It was the first really big employer of any kind of scholar. 300 people worked at this distillery in 1750. Within 70 years, it was gone. It was closed. Why? Taxation. When William Pitt became prime minister, he found himself saddled with a lot of debt. Apparently, the British had fought a war with a bunch of Americans and it had saddled the British government with far too much debt. So he started taxing tobacco and tea and so on. And then he tried to wrap his head around the excise in Scotland. So he set up a bunch of acts to Parliament to try and tax the spirit making. The idea was that you would reduce the taxes in the Highlands so that people who are making illegal underground whiskey come out and start making it legally and therefore pay the revenue to the excise. But what they did end up doing was that they taxed the lowland distillers for the size of their stills and the Highland distillers by what they were producing. So the tax is north and south of what became known as the Highland Line, which was an artificial line that was drawn in 1784. So when you talk about the Highland whiskies, Lowland whiskies, that was an artificial line drawn in 1784. By the time you get to 1800, a distiller in southern Scotland, like at Kennet Pans, they were paying upwards of £3,000 sterling a year for their stills, with the same still in the Highlands paying £100. So, and of course, you couldn't, the excise officers couldn't do anything in the Highlands anyway. It was unpoliceable. So it didn't have the effect of bringing people out into the open. And, but what happened was the lowland distillers started running the stills very heavy, producing far poorer quality whiskey. So people were willing to pay in Glasgow, Edinburgh, London, willing to pay more money to get illegal Highland hooch than they were the stuff made on their own doorstep. And really, when the English distillers in London complained that they were paying more tax than Roland Scotland's as well, that another bill was passed which equalised that and you couldn't sell your... Most of the Scottish whisky that was being made was sent to London for rectification into gin. And when that was effectively stopped, the Lowland distillery industry just collapsed. And by 1790, it was virtually gone. But it still had done nothing to change what happened in the Highlands. And what it was was a lot of landlords in the Highlands were turning a blind eye to all the solicit whiskey that was being made on their, on their doorstep because that was how their rents were being paid. It didn't do them any good to have their tenants in jail not paying rent when the rents were being paid in illicit whiskey. So what the government did was they passed a law to say, if you know as a landlord whiskey's been made illegally on your land, you will pay the fine. And suddenly their tune changed. And in 1823, from the stick approach, they brought out the carrot approach. One £10 payment, peppercorn tax, and you can have a legal distillery. And it just changed overnight. They tried the same in Ireland, but it didn't work in Ireland because of geography, history, and so many other aspects in Ireland. And I think what they've done was they've thrown so much stuff at a wall, finally something stuck. I don't think they realized just how successful 
this one little piece of legislation would be because it just changed everything overnight. Suddenly, hundreds of distilleries apply for licenses. And places that had been amazing for producing illegal whiskey found themselves, if they were remote, not able to compete. So you've got Glenlivet, which became a great whiskey-producing area. You cross the hill into the Cabrach, which used to have a 1,000 stills in the Cabrach. By 1840, there wasn't one because it was too remote to get transport in and out. And it withered on the vine. In 1900, there was 1,000 people lived in the Cabrach. Today, it's about 40 because there was no point living there anymore. So it had that knock-on effect. It was part of the high influences, but it just you just start to see the numbers from 1823 onwards. And then you had all these whiskies available to the likes of John Dewar, Arthur Bell, Matthew Globes, famous grouse, Johnny Walker. And they came along and they started buying these whiskies. And they created the Distillers Company Limited and so on DCL, which would become United Distillers, which becomes the Agio. And so you see the big multinationals starting to take control. But you have this window between 1823 and about 1840. You have this gold rush. It's like the Klondike. Everybody's making legal whiskey, but not everybody's making good whiskey. And that just changed the landscape of Scotland completely. And we wouldn't have the industry we have today if it hadn't been for 1823. Absolutely amazing. So David McNichol, author of The Language of Whiskey, thank you so much. We've been having a fantastic interview just talking about the, the sense of place, the history of whiskey, the language of whiskey. And you have just been graciously sharing with our audience here. Really, really appreciate that. No, we want you to go, go, go pick up a copy of his book on Amazon. And, and David, any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? I would say, you know, it's a book for just sitting down, good dram, just sit down in a nice summer's day, open up the book. It's not a tome. It's a page turner. And it, it really, it, it's really about looking at, as I said, right from the start, we said a different perspective. And if you really are interested in what's in the glass and, and how variables came to be to get into that glass as you enjoy it, then it takes you down that, that particular route. So I can only echo the words, go and get it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, hey, thank you again, David McNichol, for being on here, well, for sharing you. your knowledge with us. Thank you all the whiskey lovers in our audience. And, and what a fantastic interview. I certainly learned a lot. My name's Tim McNeely, and thank you for joining us on the Bakersfield Whiskey Society podcast, where we help you know what you like and why you like it. Until we meet again, get out there and enjoy a great dram. You've been listening to the Bakersfield Whiskey Society podcast. We take you behind the tastings and beyond the label into the story of the people, the places, and the process that make whiskey what it is. For more beyond the podcast and to hang with the community, learn, and to hang with friends, attend a live tasting. You'll love it. Visit us at BakersfieldWhiskeySociety.com. We can't wait to have you in the family. So till next time, sit back, pour a good one, enjoy, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. We enjoyed it.